Hello friends, welcome to this week's episode of My Big Fat Mouth. We're uh, we're breaking from what has become recent tradition this week. I'm going to be doing a little solo cast today. Uh, reason being purely that I haven't had a chance to catch up with you directly myself for, for a little while. We've done six episodes including the pilot so far and all of them have been with guests except for the pilot so it's been a few weeks since i've had a chat to just catch up with you myself and you know update you on on what's going on with me and i thought it'd be nice to just take a little break next week we will be coming back with guests though so don't worry about that let's get into the meat of it So no introductions to spend our time on today. We're just going to be getting straight into the vodcast. So without further ado, let's begin by asking, what have I been up to lately? Uh, so uh, what do you what have you been up to, mate? What have you been up to? So I've actually I've been up to a lot since last time we we spoke directly. Um, I I'm still smashing through Indomitus stuff. Videos wise, um, I think all I have left to do is the Chaplin, if memory serves correctly. Um, but in terms of Indomitus commissions, I still have that same Chaplin, which is going to make a video. Uh, I've got another Judicia to get through. I've got uh, and one more captain to do. That'll be, I think, four Blade Guard captains I've done in total. But we're getting those wrapped up soon, and then that's going to be a break from Indomitus for a while. Uh, I've got an Imperial Guard commission, some regimental advisors that I really, really want to get finished up. But I kind of need to push through this Indomitus stuff. Um, so they'll be probably the next thing after that. Uh, and and it's three regimental advisors. I've done two of them. So that commission, again, is, is nearly done. Um, I've been working really, really hard on the word bearers. They're almost finished now. Uh, so I've started to sort of turn my attention a little bit more towards the Blood Angel successors as a result of that. So I've had some, some fun with Blood Angel successors. Um, a little bit of Tau. I, I, a few of you will have seen that there's, there's a Tau studio army coming up as well. Um, so for those of you that aren't aware of what the plan is here, basically um, I'm sort of collecting these uh, 2,000 point lists. I'm sort of making 2,000 point lists that I think represent sort of a bit of everything that the army can do. Uh, so they're not necessarily focused or optimised lists. They're not, you know, competition lists. They're lists that kind of give a good feel for that army's flavour in, in play terms, that army's sort of play style on the board. And the idea is that I want to assemble as many of these 2,000-point armies as I can afford to, um, which is one of the things that you guys pay for when you support me. And then once I've sort of got a good clutch of them and COVID is over or at least at a point where it's safe to do so, I then want to start hosting um, games where I'll be able to invite members of the community over, uh, be that, you know, patrons or other content creators, things like that. And we'll be able to play games where they can just kind of pick an army that, you know, they've always wanted to get an idea of how that army plays and, and they can just grab it off the shelf. There'll be a list with it. And we can play a game, we can film a battle report, and it'll just be, you know, not sort of big, long, hour-and-a-half battle reports, but like, you know, 30-minute to an hour kind of nice digestible battle reports that are more about us just having fun and having a good time together. 
Um, obviously that's going to be really, really fun, but it's going to take a very long time to do because I've got to do it all by myself. So I've got an Imperial Guard army already. The, um, it does need a bit of tightening up. It, the, the paint jobs on it are very, very rushed, but, but it is a, a fully painted army. That's actually probably closer to three, three and a half thousand points because that was the first faction I collected when I got back in at 8th edition. Um, then, I, sorry, I'm just looking over to my shelf quite a lot here to remind me what's on it. Uh, there's also the word bearers army there as i said which is now nearly finished i've got uh, a tank that is what it's literally right here this is uh, actually featuring in some videos um so this rhino just needs a few finishing touches done to it weathering powders and a bit of black paint essentially um and then a couple of dark disciples and um one more greater possessed which is actually there that greater possessed right there uh, so, so yeah, you know, that army is very nearly done. That'll be two complete armies. The Blood Angels are probably nearing the halfway point now, I would say. Nearing. They're probably at about sort of 40%. So that's kind of all the stuff that I've been working on. Uh, and then there's going to be the Tau, and, and then we'll talk about some more stuff that's going to be coming up later, because we have a whole section for, uh, for you know what's what's coming up that's kind of one of the things that we do um so yeah you know it's 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 been it's been pretty busy there's been there's been a good a good chunk going on uh, lots of commissions lots of uh studio armies um a, a bit of 2d i've slowed my 2d work down now i finally sort of clicked that gear um i'm basically just painting one 2d commission a week now which you know is is fine it means i'm doing less of it but it does mean i'm still doing it and i still want to be doing it but i just don't want to be doing as much of it and so you know that's kind of what i've done um it's it's a bit tricky because obviously you know i've sort of quite quickly gone from this point of um my my main form of of employment being painting these 2d commissions and then sort of dumped all of my eggs into the basket of content creation and mini painting commissions so you know it's a bit tricky from a personal level at the moment of sort of restacking that balance so that i'm still getting by in a you know fairly secure way but that's all part of the process you know it's got to happen at some point anyway and for any of you out there that are self-employed and are, you know considering a change of direction in your career or some sort of change of movement change of plan um I would honestly give the advice, you know, you're probably never going to feel safe and secure and ready, certainly from a financial, from a practical perspective, you're probably never going to feel ready to make that move. You're always going to be worried. Um, but there's going to come a point where you sort of have to make the move. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's gone from a point for me where <clears throat> commissions were earning me, you know, a good living wage every single month reliably. Um, and now, because I'm taking far fewer um, 2D commissions, and I'm obviously, I don't have as much of a high profile for mini painting commissions at the moment, so I just don't get as many of those comparatively to what I used to get for 2D commissions. What that means is that commission money is now lower, but because YouTube's been doing very well and the journey's been very quick, um, you know, Patreon money is sort of supplementing a little bit of that, um, you know, and, and eventually as, as things continue to build at this same rate, it's going to be a struggle for a, a few more months while this continues to grow. And then hopefully it'll get to the point where it pays a wage again. And, you know, that, that'll, 
it will sort of feel like back to square one because it'll be all this extra work, but it's only just gone to paying a wage. But then, you know, the next stage of growth from there is that as it starts to then generate surplus income, I can then start to do stuff for the community. I can, you know, build more of these armies for the studio army plan. I can do more giveaways. I can paint miniatures for the channel and then just, you know, randomly give them to viewers, that sort of stuff. So there's a lot more that you can give back as it continues to grow. And I think, you know, when it comes to that point of readiness, that being aware of that point of readiness, I think you kind of have to just accept that at some point there's going to be a risk and you're going to be left with a choice to either take that risk or sort of feel a bit stuck in the mud. And I just sort of didn't want to feel stuck in the mud anymore. You know, I wanted to start feeling like I was making some moves. And so if you have to take two steps backwards in order to start stepping forward again at all, then I think that's a that's a pretty good thing. And a lot of actually what I've been up to over these last sort of five weeks or so since we last sat down for a one on one like this um, is just kind of figuring ha figuring out how that's going to work, you know, figuring out what my new life is going to look like. Um, with regards to, to how I do my work now, I'm, I mean, I'm working more hours and I'm making less money, but my God, I'm so much happier. I feel so much more fulfilled, so much more confident. You know, my self-esteem is better. And the worry, you know, the practical side, the financial side, the worry, that is a very small price to pay ultimately. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where the journey has mostly been for me. The actual work itself is so enjoyable um, and, and so fulfilling now that it, it doesn't really feel like work. Um, so a lot of what I've been up to is really just kind of relearning my day to day, you know, and, and kind of settling back into this new routine, which is lovely. So with all that said, probably the next thing that makes sense to go into is section number two. So let's talk about what I'm high on right now. Yeah, what am I high on right now? So yeah, probably the first things that spring to mind, um, there's two new armies I've got my eye on. This is the plan for the next two studio armies. Um, and, and a lot of that comes from a bunch of inspiration that I've received from other people recently. Um, so that is Gene Stealer Colts, which is largely thanks to uh, Sneal, Sneal69, who was recently on the show. Um, they're just... Fucking cool miniatures. That's really the, the long and short of it. They're, they are the miniature range of everything Games Workshop has currently, which is a vast array of miniatures. They are the range that I just most look at and think, God, these are well designed. You know, they're just beautifully, beautifully designed. They really conjure this grim, dark, dirty kind of, you know, punkish sort of, feel and and they do it so well so so precisely on the money every time every single miniature you look at you just think that's exactly what i imagine gene stealer colts to be like um and it's just cool it's just really really cool and i love it so uh gene stealer colts have been doing it for me big time at the moment um and also Emperor's Children, which is in thanks largely to uh, Kirioff. Kirioff is a pretty well-known hobby YouTuber. Uh, he does 
really fucking cool content actually it's, it's it's very much variety content you know you'll get bits of painting he does range reviews uh, so check him out i'll put a link in the description to his channel um all sorts of cool content but but one of the things that you see a lot when you follow him on twitter is him sort of slaneshifying everything um and there's lots of you know black and pink and purple and electric blue and that sort of thing um which are you know the colors that we sort of identify with slanesh and it's they're just really exciting colours to paint when, you know, a lot of, if you if you watch this, you're probably aware of the kind of painting that I do. And a lot of the painting that I do, I try to sort of gear it more towards natural tones, um, you know, lots of kind of battle-worn and, and grim and dark and, you know. Um, and it's not to say that, that those bright colours can't fit into that but they're often not something that you that you think of straight away when you're when you're kind of thinking about that sort of style and so as a result um i've just kind of been very inspired by two armies that are really different to all the stuff that i've been doing previously um when it comes to gene stealer cults i picked up i already had a, a box of neophytes which i was planning to make a kill team with but actually i'm not going to do that anymore i don't think um, but I already had a box of Neophytes and I picked up a Brood Coven as well um, because I wanted a Patriarch and I love the Patriarch model that's in the Brood Coven. I also wanted a Magos. Um, so, you know, it just kind of worked out that Brood Coven was uh, a smart thing to grab. And um, I, I painted up the Patriarch. It was the Patriarch that I decided to jump on first. And I just had such a nice time painting these, like, you know, purples and muted pinks. And I decided to do these, like, bright green fades on all of the claws and stuff. Just stuff that's a bit different to what I've been painting lately. And it was really, really nice. It was super refreshing um, and super energising to get to paint something that was so different to what I've been doing lately. And that was really, really inspiring. And it kind of locked it in for me. You know, it sort of made me realise, yeah, this is definitely an army that you should collect. Because you're going to feel so inspired by all of these new things that you get to do as a result and it's going to make a great studio army because it's it's an army that mm, a lot of people don't really know much about a lot of people don't really know how to play it a lot of people aren't really super interested in it and there's always this assumption that it's not a very good army um and i think a lot of that just comes from it uh, what it used to do in eighth which it was you know reasonable at they were always considered kind of a, an all right army in eighth for you know all right to good kind of okay army um but all of what it really did in eighth it's not good at doing anymore um it's not like it, its troops aren't really very good at just sitting on objectives and not being killed to death um and so you kind of you have to play it really differently now it's kind of um you're looking to play it more as this far more mobile army i think and you're looking to play it more as um an army that concentrates on kind of being killy and getting your opponent off of objectives maybe um you know there, there might be situations where you sort of want to you know charge an enemy off of an objective or just wipe them off of shooting and kind of clear the area for your squad to then be able to sit on that objective so i think the play sequences just require a lot more setup now um, and you have to really kind of be very good at battlefield analysis and, and seeing where you need to sort of make these setup plays. But I don't think that means they're a bad army anymore, or, or they've become a bad army. I think that means that they've become an army that's really hard to play. 
And so as a play experience, as a learning experience for players that want to check out different aspects of the game that they're not familiar with, I think that makes them really, really ideal. Um, and a similar story for the Emperor's Children, I, I painted a test scheme, uh, which we'll talk more about in a little while, actually, because it's, it's relevant to another topic on today's cast as well. Um, but I painted a test scheme, and it was just so nice to paint these really bright pinks with the contrasting blacks. And, you know, I paint a lot of power armor anyway, so power armor never really feels stressful. It can feel boring, but it never feels stressful, it never feels hard, because I do so much of it. Um, so to be able to paint power armor, which is very chilled and easy for me to work on, but on the other side of that, to be working with these really cool, bright, sexy colors, that felt very inspiring. Uh, then I started to kind of look at some of the ways that you could build the army. And again, you know, go into that kind of on the tabletop, how do you represent what this army does? Well, Slanesh, it's a weird army because a lot of, a lot of the sort of buffs and bonuses that it's given being a chaos army relate to combat. But really what Slanesh wants to be doing is being a very shooty army. Lots of sonic weapons, lots of havocs. Um, obviously, Havoc's not getting a move and shoot penalty, and they're going to be going up to two wounds as well, or we're pretty sure they're going to be going up to two wounds. Havoc's may just be one of the best heavy weapons choices you can take soon. Um, for, for example, like, chain cannons, um, they're like strength five and i think they're ap1 they might be APs. no i'm pretty sure they're ap1 i'm pretty sure they're better than a pulse rifle they're like strength five ap1 but they're heavy eight so if you've got four chain cannons in a havoc unit and you use endless cacophony that's 64 shots of strength five ap1 like that just minces through primaris that just absolutely obliterates them and then obviously you know you've got things like prescience that you can throw on there to uh, to make them a bit more reliable um and you know for a couple of command points or for a command point and a, and a good psychic phase you can have these units that are not particularly costly from a points perspective just be so impactful on the battlefield and i really wanted to build this slanesh army that concentrates on this kind of shooty element concentrates on this you know doing this kind of endless cacophony based strats and these kind of uh, wall of noise wall of firepower sort of idea that seemed really really fun to me and it seemed really representative of what people sort of think of as as slanesh and as therefore emperor's children you know to some extent um so I wanted to build the army in that way, and I think, again, that will be a really interesting play experience for a studio army, so that's going to be a really cool way to do it. I did write an initial list that I'm not 100% on. There may be some sort of changes that I decide I want to make to that, um, just from a perspective of, you know, for, for a start, it didn't include any demons, um, and I really quite want to play a keeper. So, you know, that's a thing. Because Mostly because I really want to paint a keeper. I don't get to paint those big miniatures that often these days. People don't commission them very often, because obviously, you know, it's expensive to commission them. Um, and it just doesn't really happen to be much sort of big grand stuff in any of my armies at the moment. You know, I'm, I'm not going to play like... Um, I'm not going to play like the big Tau battle suit in my Tau army, for example. I'm not going to play a greater demon in my word bearers army because they're just not things that are really great to be playing in those armies. I mean, I mean, yeah, the big Tau battle suit. Uh, what, what's it called? The the Tau Nar, the Tau Nar, the big Forge World Tau battle suit. Like it's insane. It's really, really powerful. But 
it's a lot of money and a lot of points. And when you want an army that you know represents kind of all the things that that, that faction does in some way or another, then it's not it's not great to just park a bunch of money and a bunch of points into one miniature for for achieving that purpose. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's the, the way the Emperor's Children Army is looking like it's going to come together is is largely based on stuff that I think will be cool on the table and stuff that I really want to do from a painting perspective. Um, so yeah, definitely a keeper on that list. And um, it's going to be like at least two squads of Havocs, at least two squads of Noise Marines, um, probably a couple of Sonic Dreadnoughts, which is going to involve some faff. I don't really know how you go about getting a Sonic Dreadnought these days because I haven't seen like a conversion kit available anywhere to do like the double uh, Blastmaster arm for them. So I don't, I don't really know how that's going to work at this stage, but you know, well, I'll, I'll figure something out. <clears throat> but it's cool. It's the, the, the overall point is it's really inspiring. I am excited about these new armies that I'm going to be working on soon, um, which by proxy has kind of also made me really excited about the armies that I'm that I have in progress at the moment because it gives me fresh incentive to get painting them again. You know, it gives me a, a, a fresh desire to start getting paint on these miniatures so that they can be complete and I can start to use them and then start to work on this new stuff that I'm really really into. So you know, it, it, it's all around a very very good time at the moment, and I'm kind of loving it. Kind of loving it. So after all that excitement and, uh, you know, getting really up on what I'm high on, I suppose I'm going to attempt to, I'm going to attempt to handle this tactfully and not bring the mood down. But let's head into the rant. So today's rant is, it's a special one. It's, it's one that's close to my heart. Um, because it's one I've been on both sides of. So all I've really, all I've written for myself in my notes here is just let people enjoy the fucking hobby. Um, and I, and I, there's gonna, you know, I need to unpack that a bit. Um, I, in the past, have been very guilty of um, overvaluing my own opinion on certain things. It's a personality flaw. Um, and it's a personality flaw that if you suffer from it, you know, it's quite important to identify it and try and work on it because it can really make you come off as toxic to other people. Uh, it can really make you represent yourself in kind of a shitty way. And often that's not the intention. In a lot of cases, um, people being very uh forceful with their own opinions is, is is it's often born of passion and of care and of genuinely wanting to help um which is something i've realized in, in in my case which is why it's been a bit easier for me to check it's been a bit easier for me to kind of get it in line from a personal perspective because when i've done it in the past it's it's always come from a place of you know i want to help this person i want to i want to offer advice that's going to provide them with benefit um the problem really is is in how you put it across because it it feels malicious no matter what and th and that's really why it's such an issue sometimes you can just be trying to to be helpful sometimes you're not trying to be malicious 
but 100% of the time it feels like you are. It feels like you're trying to hurt the person you're talking to. Um, and so what I'm talking about here, it, it, what I want to really focus on is how sometimes we can get it into our heads that our thoughts and feelings on the hobby and on how the hobby is done should be echoed by other people, should be subscribed to by other people. Um, as a content creator, that's particularly a difficult juggle because, you know, you're making this information because you want to help people and entertain them and you're putting it out there into the world and obviously you want them to like it. You know, the, you wouldn't be putting it out in the, into the world if you wanted them to like it and by, you know, a, a, as a knock-on effect to them liking it, you would hope that they would also follow some of your advice as well. Um... But ultimately, you know, it, it is their choice. And I mean, some of the content creators that I follow, um, a good example is Goobertown Hobbies. That's a great example. I love Brent. I find his videos so entertaining, really soothing, really easy to watch. There's almost nothing in common with how we paint. There is very, very little in terms of what he does to a miniature that I would do to a miniature. But I've never once felt the need to comment on his videos and tell him that because it's his content and it's his choice how he does it. It's his hobby. It's his enjoyment. My thoughts and feelings on the hobby aren't there to make other people do what I want them to do because that's not what the hobby is about. And, you know, over... Over a bit of time of kind of thinking about this and, and checking oneself and, you know, trying to grow and trying to improve and trying to be a better person, you realise that actually the best thing to want from other people in the hobby is for them to enjoy the hobby. If you make your focus on wanting to see other people have a good time, it's a lot easier to not be a prick. But on the other side of that, there are some people who just like to have their voice heard and will insist that what they think is absolutely correct. In a hobby like Warhammer, it's very difficult to apply absolutes. Um, and this go this goes for all aspects of the game. This goes for, you know, kit mashing, building and cleaning miniatures, painting miniatures, playing Warhammer, even the lore, because the lore by, by GW's own hand is supposed to be fluid, open to interpretation, and deliberately written with bias. Every time lore is presented to you, it's normally presented in the first person from, you know, who is giving you that information, and therefore there's supposed to be inherent bias built into how the lore is put across to you uh, from whatever faction is giving it to you. And as a result of all of that, the law itself is not something that you can trust to an absolute. And GW have even said this in the past. They have made a point of telling us this. You cannot trust it in the absolute because it's presented subjectively, deliberately. And that is to allow people to have creative freedom. It is to allow people to do what they want to do. Um, but when you get people who come along and, you know, you've made a choice and... It's okay for them to not be keen on it. They don't they don't have to like a choice that you've made. But what they also really don't need to do and really shouldn't do is tell you that something that you've made a choice to do is wrong. It's not their fucking business. 
and it's just harmful. Why, why take something that someone is excited about and happy about and feels a sense of achievement over and then sour that for them by telling them it's wrong? And then what's even worse is when you are then, when you then ask them to qualify what they're saying, all the qualification they can provide you with is just repeating it's wrong. But, but it's not wrong because you say so. If you can tell me a reason why it's actually wrong, if you can tell me a factual reason why what I've done is something that I shouldn't do, then I'm willing to listen to that and potentially change what I'm doing. But if what you're telling me is what I've done is wrong because you don't like it or because you don't agree with it subjectively, fuck you, not your place. I don't want I don't want that shit on my content and I really don't want to see that shit on other people's content either. And I will go to bat defending content creators who people do this to because it's bollocks. It's a really horrible, toxic way to treat people. And I think the reason I feel so passionately against it is because in the past, in my misguided, small-minded self, I used to think that part of helping people was was doing this to them, was correcting them. Um, and it doesn't help people. And it's something that I'm ashamed to admit, really deeply, genuinely ashamed to admit that I've done in the past. And I'm also really grateful that I've learned that lesson. And the, and, and the way I've learned that lesson is by being exposed to people in the Warhammer community. And I'm, I'm talking specifically here about the Warhammer community who have shown me a better way, who have taught me to not be a shithead. And I appreciate that there are certain aspects of life where we all need guidance in order to not be a shithead. You know, the, the default human state can often expose you to just being a bit of a prick when you don't really mean to be. Um, I accept that. And that's something that we can all accidentally do sometimes. And if we apologize and demonstrate that we're trying to grow and actually, you know, actually show that we're trying to get better and be better and do better, then... We should absolutely feel okay with that. You know, we, I'm not saying that you should be proud that you used to be a prick, but you should allow yourself to, you know, you shouldn't punish yourself too much over it because at least you've now learned your lesson and you're doing the right thing. But these people who just seem happy to stew in their prickishness and just continue to break other people down and make them miserable, I have no time for that and I will not tolerate it in circles that, that I'm a part of. If I, if I see it happening, I'm gonna say something about it because it's it's just not okay. It's just, we're supposed to be a community at the end of the day, you know, we are supposed to be united in our love of this hobby and our passion for it and in our desire to see each other grow, to lift each other up, to make each other feel good. Those are things that are really at the core of the Warhammer hobby for me. They matter to me more than any other part of the hobby. And I really just don't want to see that shit anymore. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you think you may have been this person at some point, maybe have a think about it. That's all I'm asking. Maybe just have a think about it. If you have been that person at some point, ask yourself if you can do better. Ask yourself how you can do better. If you've seen other people being this person, ask yourself, you know, should I maybe have said you're being that person? Should I maybe have, you know, just put it out there that, it's probably not okay to tell someone that they're wrong when they're just enjoying the hobby. Like, just let people enjoy it. Let people have a good time with it. It's such a fun, rewarding, wonderful hobby. 
just let people enjoy it. That's it. Simple. Okay, so my friends, it's now time for me to sprawl back in my chair and relax a little bit. And uh, we're going to head through to the mailbag. Mm -hmm. Mailbag. So the mailbag section, as you know, yeah, I'm going to have to be checking my notes quite a bit here because I need to read out your questions as you've provided them, as you've written them. Uh, so I'm going to... This is my first time doing a solo mailbag. I'm, I'm not really sure how I wanted to, to, to do this, but I think I'm basically just going to kind of work my way through this list of questions that you've given me and, and, and just do my best to answer each one fairly concisely. Some of them are a bit lengthy, which actually for the first time in a while has meant that I've had to drop a couple of people's questions just because some of them I, I can't answer too quickly, but I feel like they're really worthy of... of um you know being addressed so if your question has been missed it doesn't mean it wasn't valid or it wasn't a good question uh but it's maybe one to ask again at a later date and i'll try and get round to it when i don't have so many questions that perhaps need long answers and really can't be missed in my opinion so don't feel disheartened if your question isn't isn't in this list um just ask it again in a future episode and I will get round to it as soon as I can. And, and that goes for anyone, really. You know, just keep asking them questions. It doesn't matter if you're asking the same question every week. We will at some point get round to dealing with it. It's just, you know, I have to start prioritising these things. And as the show grows, so do the number of questions that come in. Uh, so, without further, let's start with uh, Sabicopter says, What thing no longer in the rules do you miss most? What do you think has been the best new rule? Or thing cut. Uh, so the thing I probably miss the most is actually um, locational damage on vehicles, like damage charts on vehicles. I know they were slow and clunky, and th and they were. Don't get me wrong. Like vehicles just having toughness and wounds now, like any any other model, is from a play perspective is absolutely better. But the cool thing about like locational damage and damage charts was that it meant that you could kind of um, there was, there was sometimes these, like, rare occasions where you'd get lucky. You know, someone would score a penetrating hit, um, but it was, like, on your track or something. So whilst your tank was immobilised, you could still spin your turrets and move your sponsons. And, uh, like, the, the model still had some value. It wasn't just, like, 200 points deleted off the table. Um, so it, it kind of it developed a bit more of a sense of urgency for your opponent. Like, if they blasted it with some last cannons and it was just track disabled but could still fire. They're like, okay, fuck no, I really need to focus on this. I've got to get it off the table. Um, which would mean that you would end up sort of trading for points a bit more regularly. You know, it would it would actually cost them like 200 points worth of miniatures firing at your tank to delete your 200-point tank. Um, whereas nowadays, the way wounding vehicles works, it can quite often be the case of like, you know... 150 point squad can just delete a 200 point vehicle um you trade down a bit more often under under the the current rule it just that's not necessarily a problem that's not necessarily an issue but i do find that it can create either a few more feel bad situations or um just a few slightly less interesting situations 
and I like I like my games Warhammer to be interesting. I like you know those funny corner cases when they crop up. You know when it's like oh, you know, I'm firing four last cannons at your Predator, like, it's definitely dead, and then it's, like, three of them hit the tracks, and the tracks are, like, completely blown up. But in terms of actual damage, it's only taken, like, one serious hit to the hull. It can still fire. Maybe it reduced ballistic skill, you know, maybe it's, like, a BS4 or something, but it's, like, it can still fire. It's still a threat. It's, like, it's going to get you. It's, it's, it's going to get its revenge. And those are fun. Those are just fun little play angles, you know. They're, they're, they lead to funny exchanges between players interesting back and forths on the table they're just you know they're fun they're fun and fun is fun is what i play warhammer for i play i don't play warhammer to beat people i don't play warhammer to be beaten i play warhammer to just extract as much fun from the game as i can um so i'd like i'd love to see location locational damage and and all of that sort of thing back but I also accept the fact that it won't come back and it shouldn't come back. You know, the game is better without it, but it's a fun aspect that's missing. Um, what do I think has been the best new rule or thing cut? Um, thing cut, I don't, I don't really think I maybe have much to comment on. Best new rule, as, as much as they're overcomplicated, and they are, the new terrain rules I actually think are a great step in the right direction because it just makes terrain play more of a living, active role in the game. And I think that's a cool thing. I think that's something we should be celebrating and something we should be happy about. Um, because planning terrain and talking about it with your opponent and kind of, you know, figuring out how you're going to handle terrain is it's another layer to the game that's fun and explorative and you can have a good time with it and that's that's a great thing for the game so whilst it's in its current iteration it is a little bit difficult to remember all the fucking keywords that each piece of terrain has and i can see a lot of people using some sort of marker system to circumvent that i do still think it's a cool addition and i do still think it's something i'm very happy to see in the game probably my favorite new thing to come in um next question adeptus nerdicus says adding on to the previous question if you could add any rule or mechanic to 40k what would it be um so yeah i kind of answered that um in the sense of you know vehicle damage and and um or vehicle damage tables and locational hits but actually i think going back to what i said previously like i do i acknowledge that the game is better without those things so maybe that's fine Something I do think I would really like to see um, is custom character creation. A way that you can take a skeleton of a character and as you add stuff to it, that character costs more and more points. Um, it's not particularly hard to balance and you can come out with a character at the end of it that you've built the way you want it. You know, So if you want like this absolutely fucking unkillable tank bastard McMad cunt of a space marine captain, you can have it, but you're going to pay like 420 points for him or something. And you, you build it yourself and you add all of the stuff that you want to add to make it do the things that you want to do. Now I get that there's a little element of, you know, certain abilities might combo together and that might make something that's OP. Um, but... It's not particularly any harder to manage that than it is to manage the rest of the rules currently. You know, that, that would only take a quick bit of looking at and a quick errata every now and again comparatively to the rest of the vast rules that already take fucking ages for them to look over. And, you know, it would be a, a, 
another shred of hay on top of an already existing stack. It wouldn't really make much difference in the grand scheme of things. So I would, I'd love to see custom characters in 40k, because uh, I, I believe EOS has a system for it. I don't know that, because I don't really know anything about EOS, but I think EOS has a system for it. So it'd be pretty cool to, um, to see that incorporated into 40k as well. That would be neat. That would be really neat. Uh, Dinglis asks, what would a good and healthy competitive scene look like in your mind? And this is actually a really interesting question because I don't think most people will be expecting this answer. I believe that from my experience of it, which admittedly I have very little recent experience of it, but I do have experience of it, you know, over the course of my life. But my, my general experience of the competitive scene for Warhammer is that it is healthy. It is good and healthy. So what it would look like is probably what it looks like. Um, to unpack that a little bit, what I mean there is GW don't over-involve themselves in the competitive scene. They don't even host most of the tournaments. You know, most of the tournaments are hosted by third parties. Uh, they, do, they do hold tournaments, but the vast majority of competitive play is held by third parties and gw make a point of not getting over involved in it you know they they publish the 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 you know the itc manual the the, the book that um has all of the sort of tournament recommendations from gw like that they they do something for it they support it but they also kind of leave they don't create an environment in which tournament organizers don't feel welcome to use their own rules and interpretations and stuff like that. Um, and that to me is very smart. It, it allows the game to be played by the people who are playing it in a way that is agreed by consensus, not by mandate. And that is just healthier for a game in general. Um, if, if the game has rules that you're not allowed to ignore, but the vast majority of the player base feels that they're bullshit, obviously they're probably going to get written out in later editions, but all the time the players are stuck playing with them, they're not going to like playing with them. Whereas the sort of serving suggestion nature of how GW puts over its, uh, its, its systems means that if you really disagree with something and you don't want it in your tournament, you can just kind of scrap it off. As long as, you know, all of your players that are playing in the tournament are aware that that's how you do it, then they're not going to have an issue with it. Um, and you do see these sort of slight variances from tournament to tournament in, in just little ways that they handle more minor things. People tend to always keep the core rules the same, but then also, you know, if there's anything majorly wrong with the core rules, that gets moaned about very quickly and very loudly. And quite often there's some sort of fix put in place for that anyway. Um... The other thing is that the, the, the competitive scene is not taken as the scene. Uh, sorry, allow me to just grab a sip of coffee here. And what I mean by that is the competitive scene is allowed to be a separate thing for people that are into it, for people that want that part of the game. But it's not the only reason to play the game. It's not. It's not a case of like casual isn't taken seriously and competitive is the only type of warhammer worth playing and i think you know uh if you've played magic you'll know the sort of comparison that i'm making here where if competitive play is the only play that's really given any thought and focus and merit and acceptance by the community at large casual play becomes kind of something that's not taken seriously and people become viewed as sort of lesser players for only wanting to play casually 
which is shit. It's, it's, it's toxic. Um, Warhammer as a hobby is very much focused on the casual player, on the individual, on what you want to get out of it. And competitive play is something that receives no disrespect. It, no one has a problem with competitive play. But no one also feels pushed towards it. No one feels... You know, I mean, I've been playing Warhammer for 29 years and I've played in maybe three or four tournaments. I've spectated a lot of tournaments because I used to have friends that played in tournaments regularly. So I'd go along with them just to hang out for the day and see people play Warhammer and, you know, witness competitive play. And that's actually a lot of how I got better at Warhammer, at the actual playing of the game, was by observing... Um, higher level play because that for me is a much easier way to take in information if i'm inside it and i've got to make 50 percent of those decisions it's really hard for me to focus on the reasoning behind the other 50 percent of those decisions whereas if i'm on the outside and just watching two other people make those decisions it's a lot easier for me to kind of take all of that in and and understand not only what's happening but why it's happening sorry if you can hear my doorbell not going to edit it out um so ultimately I, I I do think that the tournament scene is very good and very healthy, and I think the way the tournament scene integrates into the greater community is very good and very healthy, which is maybe the slightly more important part. I know it's not directly answering your question, but that's maybe the slightly more important part, is that the, the, the tournament scene doesn't create any kind of um, negative impact on the rest of the community, the rest of the scene, or the way the game is perceived, played, and enjoyed at large. And to me, that is the epitome of a healthy competitive scene. That is exactly what a competitive scene should be. Um, you will, if you've, if you've listened to the audio or read my essay that I published recently, you'll know my feelings that um, Magic is very much, a, Magic the Gathering is very much a game that is built around uh, competitive validity. And there is a social pecking order that is associated with being good at the competitive side of the game. Um, and it just leaks into even the most casual levels of play and it influences the community in a very negative, very toxic way. Um, and despite it never really being directed that way, Warhammer's just done a very good job of avoiding that. And I really, really love that about it. Uh, okay, let's move on. Exalted asks, uh, this is actually going to be the last one that I'll answer. Uh, Exalted asks, taking this from another podcast, how would you rank the pillars of the hobby? Uh, and, and Exalted defines the pillars of the hobby as building and kit bashing, painting, playing, and then background and lore, which I think I would agree with. Building and kit bashing is definitely very separate to painting. Uh, so I don't mind there being a separation in there. And lore is definitely very much a category of its own right. Uh, so which do you find least enjoyable? Oh, sorry, this isn't the last question as well. My mistake. Uh, which of which do you find the least enjoyable? So firstly, ranking the pillars, as you asked for, um, I would say painting is definitely my favourite, followed by playing, followed by lore, followed by kit bashing. So kit bashing would be the one that I find least enjoyable. Kit bashing and building. I don't like building kits in general. Um... You know, as an illustration of that, uh, I picked up a captain, lieutenant, two boxes of death company, and a tactical squad for the Blood Angel successors all at the same time recently. Um, they all came in at once, obviously all new on sprue in boxes. I built captain, 
Five of the Death Company haven't touched the rest. It's all still in sprue because that was as much building as I could sit through in one session before I got fed up of building. Um, to me, building miniatures just, it, it, it's very much a personal thing. I just don't enjoy it. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. Like there are some frustrations that I have that I do think are general valid points. Um, chiefly among them would be the way GW kits have evolved, the way Games Workshop's models um, are presented to us now. We used to have very multi-posable kits straight out of the box. And whilst they might have looked a little bit more awkward on occasion, as a general rule, you could rotate the arms at pretty much any angle, rotate the waist at pretty much any angle, rotate the head at pretty much any angle, and rotate, uh, and, and, and you could, sometimes you'd have a limited amount of movement at the legs as well. You would, So you would at least have a few points where you could kind of customise exactly, you know, you could kind of do gun up or gun down quite easily. You could do um, sort of rotations at the waist for how you wanted the miniature to look like it was in motion, stuff like that. And, and, and that also meant that if you were modifying the sculpts, you know, if you were sort of going to start taking a scalpel and some milliput to them um, to kind of change the posing, it was actually a lot easier to achieve that um, just purely because parts weren't so reliant on other parts. We've now moved through to this new era where we still refer to kits as monopose and multipose. And I actually think that that's a massive misnomer. Um, because what we call a multipose kit now is essentially anything that isn't easy to build. Uh, you know, anything that isn't, isn't snap fit, kind of easy to build kits. But that's not true to suggest that current um, standard kits, you know, not easy to build kits, are multi-pose is, is just not true. They're put together in such a way that components, um, you often get sort of large planes split across two components. So unless you connect the two components together in exactly the way that they intended you to, the large plane that is split across them doesn't line up with itself. Doing things like that means that if you do want to repose that miniature, you have to work so much harder to get it into its new pose. You have to have a higher degree of modeling converting skill, which actually means that it kind of gatekeeps, it kind of shuts off um, the entry level of converting and kit bashing. And, and so what, what you... What it means you tend to see is that people getting into kit bashing, people learning kit bashing, they tend to sort of produce really rough looking kit bashes at first, um, which is fine. Of course it's fine, but it's a shame for those people because it used to be a case of, you know, a multi-pose miniature. If you wanted to do a simple conversion on it, it was easy enough to do so that you could still produce something that looked really clean, even with very minimal skill. And so that lower barrier to entry was very, very helpful to encouraging people to develop those advanced skills and get better and better at doing the kit bashing and stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of how, uh, you know, multi-pose or non-easy to build kits are, are made these days. And in fact, I actually really love easy build kits now. Um, I've become a massive fan of easy build kits because 
they like I know I'm not going to be able to repose them so at least I don't have to spend all the extra time building them do you know what I mean like if if, if I'm put in a position where the multi-pose kit is a pain in the ass to repose and the easy to build kit can't be reposed for me I may as well just take the easy to build kit which is a lot quicker to put together in the first place and not worry about the reposing because I don't particularly enjoy it anyway and now it's so much harder to do so what's the point in doing it at all from my perspective but your mileage is definitely going to vary on that um final question roll one to explode uh my good friend rue asks from twitter uh, how do you plan out your workload so this is this is an interesting one and this is one of the reasons why i had to drop a couple of questions is because i really really wanted to answer this one and i knew that the last one was going to take a while and there's a potential that this one could i don't quite know how articulate i'm going to be able to be with this so i as you know, I, I speak about this fairly often. Uh, I suffer from ADHD and that it affects a number of different things. But the, the main sort of practical concerns from a working perspective are my ability to concentrate for extended periods of time and my ability to remain motivated to work if I become bored. Uh, those are the things that my brain uh, doesn't have the right chemistry to be able to regulate in the same way that other people do. So other people, you know, if they're bored, it's, it's discomforting to them and it makes the work drag, but they can kind of force themselves through it. I don't have that ability. I can't force myself through it. My brain literally switches off. I lose my ability to work. Um, and the same thing goes for concentration. If I lose my concentration on something, I have to take steps to refocus myself. So what this has meant is that I have to have quite a sort of piecemeal working week um i can't have too much of anything in a block so because i am currently rolling back off of my 2d commissions because i'm currently trying to do fewer 2d commissions what i've done with that is i'm now doing one a week i'm only i'm only doing one commission a week and i spread that across my entire working week i work on it a little bit every day so i'll start preparing it on a monday and I'll just do little bits of it each day, just chip away at it, chip away at it, chip away at it, and by the end of the week, I've got it finished. Um, so that means that my 2D commission is a lot less of an impact. It asks for far less concentration, time commitment from me now. Uh, Tuesdays, I always reserve as a day for editing. And uh, I find that having a fixed day for editing is a good idea for me because it does mean that all my editing is out of the way. And if I want to do any extra YouTube stuff or whatever, then um, I can kind of do it because I fancy it, not because I have to do it. So just kind of getting my editing done on that one day is, is a good idea. It makes me feel less under the gun. And I like editing anyway. It's very easy for me because it's a task that involves lots of darting in and out of different folders on my computer, grabbing different things, putting them together, modifying them. It's a very ADHD friendly task. Um, and then when it comes to the rest of my week, concentrating on um, my miniature painting commissions mostly that's the main thing that i sort of dedicate the rest of my week to because usually most of the footage that goes onto youtube i can shoot during the process of preparing a commission uh sometimes i can't so sometimes i do have to set aside time to shoot footage for youtube but i can do that ad hoc because i have such a loose week um so when it comes to uh shooting youtube footage most of it is fairly passive i don't really need to actively think about when and how i'm going to do it but when it comes to actually the painting that the youtube footage is often shot from 
Um, Wednesday and Wednesday, Thursday and Friday are the main days that I dedicate to that. So most of the painting that I do on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday will be either for commissions or for YouTube. Um, and then Saturday, I will kind of Saturday's kind of my do whatever I haven't got done that week. So anything that I'm behind on, basically I tackle on Saturday, but I don't work a full day on Saturday. I usually do about sort of two till six. So it's only like a four hour day um, because we do all our chores during the day. I do the post run on a Saturday daytime, that kind of thing. And then Sunday is usually the day that I edit the vodcast. Um, and again, you know, that only takes me a couple of hours. So that's not really a full day's work. Um, but it is just a thing that I like to sort of round my week off with because it's relaxing, it's fun. Um, so from a, from a schedule point of view, my schedule is, I keep a lot of flexibility to it. I keep a lot of openness. In terms of tracking my workload though, very different. In terms of actually keeping a record of my workload, I have a completely different approach. Um, I have an Excel spreadsheet. It's all columned off and filtered off so that I can pull stuff up when I need to. You know, I can find stuff on it easily. Um, it has the customer's name, the date I took the commission, the date the commission is due to be completed by, whether or not the customer's supplying the materials or I need to order them, a description of the commission, what I charged for the commission, uh, and then a notes section. So it's a very organized spreadsheet. And uh, that enables me to, if I'm having a fluffy brain moment, if I'm having a bad head day, or if I'm super busy and therefore don't have much headspace to dedicate to, you know, thinking about what I need to be doing or whatever, it's very, very easy for me to just look at that spreadsheet and figure it out. And what I do is I color code the entries. Uh, so I highlight them. I have a highlight color for a completed job. I have a highlight color for a job in progress. I have a highlight color for a job that's overdue. Um, and then... I also have a highlight color for like, I, I call it like abandoned jobs, but it, it's not abandoned jobs. That's not actually the right word to use for it. It's jobs where um, like I'm waiting for the customer to send me materials, but they've actually taken so long to do it that it's actually past the point where I should have even completed the job by now. That does actually happen a surprisingly large amount. Um, for example, like I have a customer at the moment, I should be working on his job. I, I should be working on his job this week. It's due this week on my on my spreadsheet. But he's mailing materials to me for that job from Turkey. And Turkey's postal system at the moment is absolutely fucked due to COVID. So what that means is it's taken so long for that stuff to get here that even though I should have, by the end of probably next week, his job should be finished. It'll probably be about a two-week job. Um, even though by the end of next week his job should be finished, I probably still won't even have the materials arrived. So that will get colour-coded to tell me that it's gone past schedule and I've now got to work it in somewhere. I've got to find somewhere to squeeze it in. And that's essentially what that colour code is for. It's for jobs that have, for some reason or another, been disrupted and I need to find a place to squeeze them in. Um, and then finally, I have a separate colour code, <laughs> which is for a, a massive ongoing commission that I've been working on for about a year and a half now. 
um, and I probably still have another year or so of work to do on it. And that's just a really, really huge job that keeps getting added to every couple of months. It, it, it gets bigger every couple of months as the customer decides they want more. But the agreement between me and that customer is just I work on it essentially in my spare time. And just every month or two, I mail them a box that's full of stuff that they've ordered um so that's just a very loose and a very informal commission that constantly sort of rolls on but having those different color codes again it helps just keep it locked in helps keep it organized helps keep it foolproof uh, idiot proof is probably the best description and, and i am both a fool and an idiot so i really really need that and so that brings us to the end of everything at last that is all of your questions answered all four of the main sections gone through it's it's been fun. It's been it's been nice to do a little one-on-one -on -one with you again, folks. So, as is tradition, uh, obviously, if you are listening to this on audio and you want to support me through Patreon, you can actually gain access to the video version of this cast as well. Uh, one of the one of the perks of being a Patreon, amongst many many other things is that you get both early access to YouTube videos and you get access to the video version of this cast. So if you want to head over to patreon.com forward slash that Mr. Shy, you can check me out there. But other than that one little plug, I think, to be honest, it's time for me to get out of here. So as is tradition for ending the vodcast, I'm going to wave at the camera like an absolute lunatic now. I'll see you in the next one. Bye!